Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Coming up on today's show, a deep dive into the emissions goals federal government has set out as they stand in regards to buildings. What's woke? Who's woke? Why has woke changed? It's now an insult, but it didn't start out that way. We'll get into that conversation. And we'll also talk about inflation. It looks like things are going in the right direction, but not everyone's in total agreement about what it all means. Um, Right now, we're going to have a conversation that I think you'll find interesting. We're going to have a conversation about... um, the targets that the federal government has set for emissions for this country. And we've talked a lot about the oil and gas emissions and how, uh, you know, a lot of people, including myself, think we maybe got a little ambitious and got out ahead of ourselves in terms of what's realistic uh, and uh, attainable, especially given, you know, what's happening in certain parts of the world where things have changed drastically over the course of the past six months. Um, but the other aspect that we haven't talked much about before now is buildings. When you take a look at buildings and the emissions they produce, it's about the third highest behind um, transportation and oil and gas in the country. So, I mean, they are a significant source of emissions in our country. And and so, just like everything else, their goal is a 42% reduction by 20, from 2019 levels. That's by 2030. And ultimately, we get to net zero by 2050. You're familiar with those targets. We've talked about them before. Question, though, is what's the cost? Is it attainable? And how do we get there? So we're going to chat with Charles DeLand, Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Charles, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Sure. Nice to join you. So, I mean, first of all, when we talk about emissions from homes specifically, where does the majority of those emissions come from? Obviously, it's from heating, right? It's from heating water. It's from heating the home, right? Yep, that's that's exactly right. That's the, the vast majority is from heating both those things. And most of it is the air. Uh, and then a smaller amount would be heating water. Okay, and the goal here is to move that off of natural gas source for heat and move it into electricity, right? That's the plan. That's the way we do this reduction. That that's one of the like that's that's one of the major things. I mean, there's a couple other levers, but in our study, that's what we looked at. I would say it's not just natural gas out here. It is, of course, in in Alberta, uh, some parts of the country still use heating oil. Uh, maritime right, sure, yeah. Okay, now let's talk about these goals. 42% by 2030. How big of a job is it ultimately to reach these goals? If we put it into numbers instead of just 42%, real terms that people might be able to understand, how big of a job are we talking about here? Sure, and that's exactly what we wanted to look at in this paper. It was to look at, it was a scenario that we created. If we were going to electrify the, the heating, what would that take in terms of in our case, replacing this uh, the fossil fuels with heat pumps in particular. So we just created a scenario in which it wasn't fancy. It was a kind of a straight line of what would it take to get to net zero by 2050. And we're looking at roughly retrofitting about over 400,000 homes per year, uh, every year uh, to 2050. Now, what about, I mean, that's just the existing. What about with new buildings being added? Doesn't that add to the number? That actually is, does include that. There okay. is some assumption that we make that they're going to start to tail off by, say, 2030. Um, in a more extreme case, in which we totally cut that off by, say, next year, which, again, we 
we can say that's unrealistic, but nonetheless, I would call it an extreme case. Even in that case, uh, we we don't reach that goal. We get to roughly uh, about 26% reduction by 2030, which is less than the 42%. Far less. Yeah, far less, but more realistic, right? I mean, that's possibly attainable. The 42% might be out of reach. Is that what we're saying? Well, I'm just uh, just saying they would take a lot. Yeah, a lot. Uh, yeah. If it would, yeah, we're taking actually looking at uh, if the, sorry the if we wanted to actually get to net zero or so the 42 percent reduction by 2030, it would take over half a million units per year to be retrofitted and nothing new emitting after 2023. Now that's just a start. As we said, we're talking about 2030, right. and the goals get more ambitious and they go farther to 2050 at net zero. What's the cost of that? What are we talking about in terms of reaching that goal? In terms of dollars? Dollars and retrofits and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, again, ours is pretty narrow. We're just looking at this, this, uh, these heat pumps. Now, it could even be more than this because we're looking at insulation and, and uh, if you change out electrical panels, that sort of thing. But we're t- looking at roughly around 4 to $6 billion per year for retrofits. Over the 30-plus years, we're talking about 150 to $200 billion dollars. Each year, the four to six billion is roughly the equivalent of about two to three modern hospitals. For to put that into some context for okay. cost. Um, now, w- when we look at these costs, who, what's what's the primary cost behind? Obviously, it's is it's retrofitting. I mean, is the technology? Is there a chance that might get cheaper? I mean, how? Just break down that yeah. cost a bit for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's true. This is. Uh, there's, it's a range. Obviously, that's yeah, a very yeah. average cost because uh, apartments are going to be different than single-family homes, than condos and townhouses. So we're taking a very uh, broad, average look at this. And you know, in our case, we're just looking at switching out the, the, the heating of water and uh, and air with like replacing a furnace with heat pumps. Now um, that can certainly grow if you have to change out your electrical, if you need to properly insulate your homes. Uh, and certainly there is a possibility that costs will come down. I mean, there's also other constraints that, that we didn't directly address, such as uh, labor. You know, it, it takes a lot of people to do this kind sure. of work. And not everyone's uh, up to the latest uh, you know, heat pump standards. Uh, and, and also the supply chain issues have been big lately. So, you know, costs can go either way. We, we don't know. I guess that there's a lot of uh, potential error. This is, again, this is not a forecast. No, this is a scenario. And, and that's such a great point, Charles, because I, I think we, we often sort of view things through the lens of today, which we have to, right? Because, like you say, there's so many different uh, unknown variables 10, 20, 30 years from now that things could be drastically different. But just looking at it from where we are now, it's still a useful exercise. Correct. That's the point. It's just to give it some context. Exactly. Yeah. So when we take a look at this, I mean, and it can also serve as a head as a heads up to governments, both federal and provincial, in terms of okay, this is the ask, this is the cost. Uh, how do we make those two work together? Right. Right. And I think one thing that you know we would ask as as consumers and as researchers is we would like to see more granularity along with some other targets. Like exactly how do how do these things, how, how do the numbers add up? You know, we have the aspirations. We have some of the methods that, uh, like like the replacing uh, of uh, fossil fuels with heat pumps, but maybe a bit more granularity on exactly how we're going to reach those numbers by what years. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And not just picking sort of the outcome and then working toward it. That's that's the takeaway for sure. I, I couldn't agree more. Charles, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Right now, though, we're going to have a conversation that I think should be pretty interesting. You know, being a guy who uh, has written and, and talked for a living, uh, I'm always interested in words. And <laughs> one of the words that I, I was trying to think, I, I don't think I've been called woke as an insult. I mean, the day is young. It could very easily happen. And I'm sure now that as soon as I've said that, I mean, I've been called a left hard and a commie today. Those are both on the text line, which is interesting because I spent a good chunk of the show criticizing federal government policies. But nonetheless, regardless, uh, woke is a word that has really been thrust into the limelight. It's in the spotlight. Uh, it's used all the time in a number of different ways. And I think where it started to where it is now are vastly different, right? Woke, the woke world, woke folks, woke culture. You'll hear it every single day if you spend any amount of time involved in political discussions. And, and as, like I say, like a lot of terms that, you know, enter the world of politics, it carries different meanings. And for a lot of people, it's become a straight up insult. You know, they'll throw it around as a, as a pejorative. Um, even though the people that you're insulting do consider themselves to be woke. So it's a little bit confusing. So not everything in politics in 2022 is well thought out and easy to figure out, but we are going to try and see if we can't track woke, what it means, what it did mean, what it might mean in the future. Terry Givens joins us, a professor of political scientist, uh, science at McGill University. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. No, thank you so much for having me today. So let's go back to the beginning with woke. When it first became a term, when was it? When did we start to become aware of it? And what did it mean at that time? Well, you know, the, when we all became aware of it was more recent. But for the African-American community in the United States, it's something that goes back to the 1930s and 40s when it was utilized you know, in, in certain blues songs and so on, you know, stay woke. And, you know, it's funny because when I think of the term, you know, it's like stay woke, be, those two words go together because it's all about vigilance. And at a time in the United States when there was a lot of violence towards, Af and well, unfortunately, there still is some <laughs> violence towards African-Americans. And and so, um, you know, the idea of woke to those of us who kind of grew up with it, and, you know, I was born in 1964, so I've been around for a while, was really, it's just, it, you know, it basically equals stay vigilant, you know, watch out for people who are going to try to, you know, do bad things to you in a, in a variety of ways because of who you are. And so to see it tossed around as a, a pejorative right now is it, just very interesting, to say the least, for those of us who grew up that way. How did that evolution happen? I mean, because I think, you know, like you say, it's been around for a long time. It really, I think, came to prominence, like you say, you know, around the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. Mm -hmm. It sort of took on a new life in terms of, you know, being aware of prejudice and those sorts of things. But it slowly started to change since then, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's become an, you know, as you were saying, an insult in the sense that, oh, you know, you just, in a sense, it's almost saying to somebody that you're being performative and, you know, sensitive and just, you know, um, trying to show that you're, you're kind of with it. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, you know, but the problem is people 
you, then you turn around and ask people what it means, and they can't tell you. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Um, the meaning of the word, like, when... when and as you say, it's sort of become something that a conservative will use against a liberal. Your old woke culture, woke culture. And so um, it's interesting because I think for a lot of liberals, yeah, I am woke. I'm proud to be woke. Yeah. It's something. I mean, so mm-hmm. it doesn't it it doesn't make sense to me. How can you have that big of a disconnect with people using it in one sense against people who are thinking, yeah, okay, I'll take that because it doesn't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that. Especially when I, I look how you know right wing politicians in the U.S. are using it, or, or not even just them. I mean, it goes beyond that. I see it on social media all the time. Is it's, you know, it's trying to, it's, uh, and this is not unusual that people will take a certain term and try to twist it in a way. And, and this happened with political correctness, right? So, yeah. really, I think what people are saying when they're saying woke now as the pejorative is saying, oh, you're just being politically correct. You know, you're just, and, and in that sense, I think the way people see it is that it is, oh, you're just being performative, right? You, you don't, you know, and I don't know if they want to say that they don't really believe the person believes the things they're saying, or if it's just, you know, they think the things that, that are connected to being woke or being politically correct are, you know, bad. So, you know, but for, you know, somebody like me to hear them use that term, I'm like, well, geez, you know, that's not the way, what it means to me. But you make a really good point because you're right. I mean, you can be um, woke people can get really mad at you for being woke if you're not really woke, if that makes any sense. Like, if, no, you, exactly. if you're just doing it to be part of the woke crowd and not really understanding the meaning of it, you can be criticized by the people who are woke, right? Absolutely. And to be honest, I think that's where some of this came from, is that, um, you know, it's like, oh, you're you're just woke Around, you know, in in a sense that oh you're you you are acting like you know what to do about you know these yeah, issues yeah. and topics, but you don't understand um, really. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. But you know, from my perspective, it's very jarring to see this coming from Canadian politicians who, first of all, are even admitting that they don't know what it means, but aren't in the same context as where this this term came. And, you know, in the United States. So it, it's just very interesting. It is interesting. And it's interesting how words can get weaponized because I've even heard mm-hmm. some liberal MPs in Canada now starting to talk about, you know, our party needs to be less woke. We can't yep, be exactly. so woke. So, I mean, it, it sticks, it stings. And some, some liberals who, you know, want to see less woke within the liberal party. Right. I saw that as well. And I was like, like, well, what what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to be less sensitive to the concerns of underrepresented minorities? Is, is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's just, I, I wish they, they would. And this is where, you know, I think we have to get back to the issue of nuance. Right. We can't just throw around terms unless we're willing to say what that really means. And what what does it mean for the Liberal Party to be less woke? Um, does that mean they're going to be uh, less interested in social justice? <laughs> I mean, I, I'd really like to know. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, when we when we take a look, at are there other words that we can look at in history that started out one way, got twisted, got turned around, got weaponized and came to mean something completely different in 10 years? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm trying to think. Well, well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is political correctness, right? Sure. 
Um, and I remember when I was doing my research on the, the far right in the early 2000s and, you know, they, they were saying, well, it's just, you know, they won't let us use certain words and so on. And, and it's just this political correctness. And, you know, and, you know, and I, I think that a lot of times people want to be able to use words because, oh, I have freedom of speech. And of course, freedom of speech is, is a very important, uh, you know, thing we, we all agree with, but it's also a question of, you know, I think we have to have nuance in our conversations and, um, you know, so when, and, and I'm still trying to think, I can't, besides political correctness, I'm yeah. having a hard time thinking of other terms that have had such a, a twist. You're, it's because <laughs> you're trying meaning. to find nuance in our political conversations, Terry, and that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it's black or white. There is no middle ground anymore. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's, see, that's why I wrote my book, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, uh, Terry. It, it's a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. All right, so the new numbers are out. This month's inflation numbers coming out this morning. And overall, I guess the big takeaway is headed in the right direction. The annual rate of inflation slowed to 7% in August. Okay, so that's year over year. So August of this year compared to August of last year, prices are up 7%, which is a lot. No question about it. But it's 7.6 in July and higher than that prior to that. So they're continuing to come down. If you take gas prices out, they were 22% higher August over August. Take them out of the equation and uh, our inflation drops even further. So, um, and there's other indicators that are going down as well. So I think the big takeaway here is headed in the right direction. But now the discussion means, are we through it? Is it over? What does the bank do? There's a whole bunch of different things and there's a bunch of different factors that go into that. So we're going to chat with Steve Ambler, who is a professor of economics at the University of Quebec in Montreal and the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute. Steve, thank you for joining us once again. I appreciate your time. Hey, it's a great pleasure, Shay. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So these numbers coming out today, what strikes you? What's the big thing that you're looking at? Is it the overall trend? Uh, yes, it's the overall trend, as you pointed out, 7.6 to 7. It's still high, but it's going down. And uh, you mentioned gas prices. So if you strip out gas prices, the uh, headline inflation went from 6.6 to 6.3. So this is uh, moderately good news. It's even more interesting, actually, if you look at what's happening uh, month over month. Well, that's the thing. Cause last... we, yeah, I think the last time we talked, we sort of said that a lot of the headline inflation numbers contain uh, what happened actually more than six months ago yeah. when prices were just on fire. Uh, so month over month, the CPI, uh, before seasonal adjustment at least, fell by 0.3%, which is an interesting number. Now, uh, if I remember, when you were, the contention that you made when you were on is, okay, if you're going to look at uh, that big headline number year over year, you're not going to see it get back to the 2 or 3% range that the Bank of Canada wants until, I believe you said, next May. But if you're looking at month to month, we're already there, right? Uh, that's right. I mean, if yeah, even if uh, yeah, I think last time I said even if uh, prices were to flatten completely, it wouldn't uh, get back down to to target before uh, somewhere t in the middle of next year. But if prices are actually dropping from month to month, um, that's we we could even get there more quickly in terms of the headline inflation numbers. 
So what's the anticipation here? I mean, like, there's so many different factors that go into this. If you're the Bank of Canada or, uh, you know, an economist at one of the major banks, whatever the case may be, what are they looking at? Because a lot of the analysts I'm hearing this morning, Steve, are saying, yeah, it doesn't mean hikes are over. We're not through this yet. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I would... I don't know whether I would hazard a guess as to what the bank is going to do, but I, I you know, we've, we've been uh, at the CD Howe, at least personally, as David Dodge chair, saying that, well, if things are starting to look good, if things and, and the month-over-month numbers are looking pretty good, um, it might be time to actually slow down the hikes or even take a pause to see, you know, whether, whether that's going to continue uh, and... Uh, just ease off a little bit on the break. What's the risk if we continue with it and go too far? Obviously, we can really throw the brakes on too hard and throw things into a recession, right? Yeah, that would mean, yes, breaking too hard means uh, means recession. So what the bank's trying to do is slow down growth. So we want slower growth, but we don't want negative growth. Um, Obviously, these numbers that you and I are talking about are not secret. They know how they are shaping up. So, I mean, when you, it seems to make such good sense to me what you're saying in terms of the month over month. Look at that as to where we are, because that sort of, sort of shows us where we'll be six months and a year from now. Um, when the calculations are made, how, what is the overriding factor for the Bank of Canada when they take a look at, um, okay, this is what we need to do? What, do you have any idea? What, what are the numbers that they sort of put all of their emphasis on? Well, they look at everything, um, but I think we've, we've also advocated uh, a little bit in the past that the bank should actually start communicating a little bit more in terms of the the month over month numbers because that's going to have a more a better effect on people's expectations. That most of their, their when they make their announcements, they pretty much always talk about uh, you know headline inflation, which as we said is year over year and contains a lot of what went on uh, in 2021 still. Uh, so if they could highlight the fact that month-over-month uh, month inflation is dropping, uh, that would affect expectations. And uh, if people don't expect as much inflation, then firms won't be hiking their prices by quite as much and wages won't be going up by uh, as quickly either. Um, it's interesting. So actually in, in Alberta, I was looking at some of the breakdowns province by province, Month over month, uh, the consumer price index in Alberta overall fell by 0.9%. So that's, uh, I don't know if your listeners are actually noticing that. Because the downside is, uh, the, you know, the, a lot of this is still due to things that are beyond the control of the bank, which is mostly gas and uh, energy prices. Right. Unfortunately, food prices are still going up. In fact, they went up by, uh, this is nationwide, I don't have these numbers for Alberta, but they went up by 1% month over month, and that's still a fairly blistering pace. You know, if, it, if that kept up for a year, that would be you know 12%, so that's a bit depressing. Um, yeah, there's no question that there's good news and there's bad news in there. How much, uh, when we've talked before, uncertainty has always been sort of one of the overriding caveats. Uh, we don't really know because of the war in Ukraine. We don't know because of the yeah. price. A lot of this stuff makes it really tough to predict. Is that getting any better? Are we seeing things settle down in the whole uncertainty component at all? Um, I mean, there's, there's always uh, the risk of a huge tail event. I mean, you know, if you look at the war in Ukraine, it mm-hmm. seems like the Ukrainians have been taking back some uh, some major, making major gains in terms of territory. Uh, the downside is, you know, what happens if Putin decides to uh, 
uh, bomb a nuclear re- reactor or use a tactical nuclear weapon. I mean, but then who knows what the you know that, that those things you can't put a probability number on that at all. The other problem is I, I said that the bank should be in terms of its communication. It would be good if it started to talk a bit more about the months over months numbers. Yeah, but those are those fluctuate quite a lot. So it's it's encouraging news, but the the uncertainty attached to those numbers is greater than uh, than year over year inflation, and that's maybe why they. They emphasize that in their communications, but uh, so it's going to, you know, we, we're, we're still going to be watching the numbers and and hoping. So the the next uh, interest rate announcement isn't it until towards the end of October, October the twenty sixth. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. there's some time to see what happens between now and then. Um, Steve, thank you for the insight. As always, really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you.